Well, welcome into a new edition of Bourbon Biscuits and Barn Burners. Chris Kerber, Tim Woodburn, John Hadley with you. The St. Louis Blues played last night, skated to a 4-1 victory over Colorado in Colorado in their season opener. Plenty of other action around the National Hockey League. A lot of high-scoring games as well, especially in that Canadian division. So our first ever episode where we delve deep into the previous night's St. Louis Blues game. Fellas, how nice was it, John, to sit back and just watch a little hockey? Oh, it was incredible. I mean, obviously, I devoured every minute of the Blues game, but starting with Philly and Pittsburgh, fun game to watch. Montreal and Toronto, phenomenal game to watch. You know, you can go right through watching Tampa prove to be Tampa, Vancouver and uh, Edmonton. I mean, it was just glorious watching hockey for half, uh, literally, what amounted to being uh, half the evening. I, I, I will say this much. I have become appreciative enough older in life to cherish every W, but when that W happens to come against one of your, uh, not only one of your key rivals uh, in, in uh, during the course of the uh, regular season, but a key rival in jockeying for postseason play, it, it's there. There was a lot to enjoy last night. If you were a hockey fan across the board. Not only as a Blues fan, but a hockey fan, you saw you you saw action that reminded you just why you have such a passion for this sport. You know, last night's game was not my favorite first five minutes of a season opener in my life. The Blues took a couple of penalties, but I I, I found myself giving a big exhale when Burakovsky basically walked the entire Blues team and essentially went in on a breakaway on Bennington in the first two minutes of the game and Bennington stuffed him. And, and I kind of exhale. I'm like, Whew, that's the guy I remember from 2019. That's not the guy I remember from last year's playoffs. And even though Colorado scored first, I thought he was outstanding and, and, and really relieved kind of my pessimistic mindset about him. And, uh, and that was my, that was my favorite takeaway of last night's game. You know, Tim, we've talked about uh, the, the gambling aspect of it, and now with it, it's going to become more prevalent where you're starting to see over-unders when scores are reported. But with Philadelphia and Pittsburgh combining for nine goals, Montreal and Toronto combining for nine goals, Tampa Bay 5-1 to one over Chicago for six goals, Vancouver beats Edmonton 5-3 to three for eight goals. There were five goals in St. Louis versus Colorado. Look, I do expect at some point that will calm down. But right now... It'd be hard-pressed to take too many unders if you're looking at uh, those situations around the National Hockey League. You're, you're going to see some goal scoring in the early part of the season. Well, I'll put it to you this way. Uh, yesterday, my best bet of the day on the local radio station here with the Blues Avalanche, under six. And I think, if memory serves correctly, that was the only under that hit all night long. So not only did I prove to be Warren Buffett of hockey sports investment, but it, it was a minor miracle that I happened to pick that one game, and I'm just very <laughs> proud of it. And probably will not make any more predictions the rest of the year. Go out on top, Montana. Exactly. <laughs> well, every every over under, for example, in, in today in today's game, today being Thursday the fourteenth, uh, is either five and a half or six. That's pretty much the standard in the NHL. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether or not any any Sevens pluck up there. Any six and a half starts to pluck up there. If this offensive surge continues, I don't probably know enough about 
conditioning and about preseason requirements in a coach's mindset with regard to whether or not it's likely to be higher scoring or lower scoring games early on because they haven't practiced that much altogether going into the season. If I were to guess and throw a file or bet out there, I would bet that a lot of overs would hit in the first two weeks of the season. Yeah, but and think about this. So now this is the one thing between last night's action and then the action that you're going to see tonight. Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, two good teams, some high-end talent. Toronto, obviously, some high-end talent. Montreal, a pretty good team, still though looking for an identity. The Tampa Bay Lightning, they're the defending champs, but they played a team in Chicago that's going to struggle. Vancouver and Edmonton, two really good teams head-to-head, right, with with a lot of high-end talent. And then you had St. Louis and Colorado. And the difference is St. Louis and Colorado so much better defensively in their overall game than, say, Edmonton is or even Vancouver is right now that that's why that score is lower. But tonight, Washington plays Buffalo. Now, Buffalo should have a much-improved team, right, but if, if you're going to choose the over, you've got to rely on Washington, I think, in that one, scoring a bunch of goals. That's my gut. You've got Boston against New Jersey. It's the same thing. That one you could probably, you might expect to see more of a lopsided game like, like you saw with Tampa and Chicago. The Rangers and the Islanders, okay, you've got two teams that can play some defense there. Carolina and Detroit, you know, all right. Again, I don't know how offensive-minded Detroit's going to be, and Carolina has to rely on some defense. So, I think you could see a few more unders tonight based on this Columbus at Nashville. That one I would expect to take the over, to be honest with you. But um, it's to me, that it's it's going to be matchup-related as much as anything else. Hey, let's stay – before we get into the St. Louis Blues, particularly last night, I want to go around the, the National Hockey League with a couple of thoughts. And in watching some of that action last night, the Edmonton Oilers and the Toronto Maple Leafs. Guys, these are two teams that – hope to be challenging for a Stanley Cup. And in the Canadian division, they both should. But as high-end talent as these two teams have, and as many high draft picks of their own that they have picked, I still watch these two teams, and I just feel like something's missing. And I think what it is is something that we just related to the over-unders. I think it's an overall commitment to a team style of play that creates a defensive structure that allows you to win. They're just... I don't know that either team has the goaltending or the defensive prowess as a team to over, to. I don't know that they have the high end offense to constantly outscore what they're missing on those other categories. If that makes sense. Well, the one thing that sticks out to me about last night's games is that you know Nathan McKinnon was held off the scoreboard. Connor McDavid was held off the scoreboard. You know that. That's not how many times when those two guys play on the same night you think that's going to happen in a 56-game season. Less than five is what I would bet. Um, you know, so there was a lot of uh, a lot of newcomers to the NHL that I thought were productive last night, guys I had never heard of and haven't really seen play a whole ton, uh, you know, get on the scoreboard last night. And it's always fun to see a, an infusion of new blood into the league every year and see which guys take off and which guys don't. Yeah, it's interesting because in in particular with the two games that you broached, um, I am a a big believer that when it's all said and done this year, Montreal is going to surprise some people. I think that's going to be a pretty good team. But more than anything else, I don't know how many teams with just the raw talent that Toronto has that can go dormant for chunks of time during games that just make you scratch your head in a serious sense. I mean, for, for at least a third of that game, it just seemed like 
Toronto had no interest. And then they flip a switch and you see, you think to yourself, there is a lot of skill on this hockey team. As far as I'm concerned with Toronto and Edmonton, similar with Edmonton, the problem is the skill levels there. Some of the marquee names are there. I just don't know. I just don't know if the grit's there, Curbs. You know, I, I just don't know if, if, if these are teams with sharp enough teeth to really take a bite out of anyone come postseason time. To be honest with you. Look, and because if you compare that to what you see with Vegas, what you see with Colorado, what you see with St. Louis, I mean, you didn't have a whole lot of, you know, real sandpaper grit with the Pittsburgh Penguins, but you, you had something with them as a team and as a unit there. And, and I almost feel in watching Philadelphia and, and knowing that, like, for example, a season ago, a season ago when I was talking to John Walton, the play-by-play voice of the Washington Capitals, that, that Philadelphia team, it, it, it's not going to be a surprise if they end up uh, winning their division, to be honest with you. It's a good team. It's extraordinarily well coached. They've got a terrific coaching staff of veteran guys, and Elaine Vigneault's just found ways to win, 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 even though he hasn't, I know, won the eventual Stanley Cup. But he has found a way to turn a franchise into a winning franchise. So I just look at it, and I think that Philadelphia is in a better spot than Edmonton. They're in a better spot than Toronto. They seem to have... I don't know whether it was a galvanizing moment or something. They, ju- they just seem to have a better all-around team game where the gap just doesn't seem to be quite as big as it is with those teams. Something something has to pull Edmonton and Toronto together uh, in their respective teams to, to, to get them consistently playing the way they need to, I think, to be successful long-term. And I don't, I don't know when it's going to come. Maybe it comes this year or not, but I- I'm telling you, I-, I think while they've been trying to figure it out, a team like Montreal has closed the gap on them. I think a team like uh, like like the Vancouver Canucks has easily closed the gap on them. You know, I, I don't think that they that those two teams we we've been talking about with Toronto and and Edmonton. I don't. They sure as heck don't scare uh, the the Calgary Flames who are a good team. But it, it just goes to show you maybe that fine line where you've you've got to have a mix of of everything to do it. And if you don't, that inconsistency is going to remain part of your game. And, and you know what? Let me go one step further with this, Tim. I, I, I think it's also because the commitment to the all-around team game on both sides of the puck that is needed has to be led by your top players. And if your top players aren't doing it, if Connor McDavid isn't leading by example on the other side of the puck as much as he is on the offside of the on the offensive side, same with Drysaddle, for example, or you know, or Mitch Marner, or one of those guys then it's going to be hard to get the rest of the team to buy in. You know, we talked about player rankings on the last show, and and one of the points that I missed that I wanted to point out in this show is that at least on the on the NBC Sports rankings of the top 100 players in the league, the Blues actually had, counting Tarasenko, they had eight of the top 100 players in the National Hockey League, but only Tarasenko was among the top 50. The other seven were 50 through... 93, I believe, Perron and Pareko was 91. It just goes to show that even with the last second loss of Mike Hoffman last night because of visa issues, the Blues' depth is tremendous. And I don't understand why the Vegas oddsmakers look at the St. Louis Blues and put them at plus 1,600, you know, basically 16 to 1 odds, identical to Edmonton, just barely ahead of Carolina and Montreal, considering the seasons that this team has had the last two years. Uh, I, I think this team showed last night it can play with the big boys with anybody. I realize it's one game, 
But the fact that the, the a depth guy stepped up and produced, that's what the Blues did during the playoff run that they had two years ago. And, and it was a it was a fabulous come-from-behind win last night against the team projected to win it all. Well, see, that's, a, that's an excellent point because aside from the bubble play, going back to that run, that run that began in January of, what, 2019, you know, that's, that's pretty much what we've seen of the Blues. You know, and I agree with you 100%, Tim. I told I told everybody on the radio show, on the Twitter account, that as far as I was concerned, if you were really a, a hockey sports investor and you failed to risk a few chuckles on the Blues to win the Stanley Cup, you're foolish. Because the Blues, it's, at, at that time, it was 18 to 1. The Blues at 18 to 1 is a much better value than Colorado or Vegas at six to one, right? Absolutely. Now all that. Now all that said, I also didn't have too many issues when I see you know various websites that I respect, publications, whatever, you know, having Vegas and Colorado ahead of the Blues. You know, I, I in the end, I really don't think there's going to be that much difference between the three. To be honest with you, I mean, last night, even in a four to one loss on their home ice, you you could see the talent that's on that roster, that avalanche. I mean, that's a really talented, skilled hockey team that's going to win its fair share of games. I just think the Blues tend to be – if the Blues, the avalanche, and uh, Vegas were all 6-1, to one, I wouldn't be talking about it. It's, it's a lack of respect that the Blues receive in regards to how comparable they are to those other two that are somewhat of a, an annoyance to me. You know what, let's get into that game now. Uh, last night, Blues in Colorado. We'll, we'll start with the depth, as Tim alluded to. Mike Hoffman, a late scratch because of work visa issues. So, you know, Craig Berube has some lineup options. Do you put a McKenzie McEachern in? What do you do? Well, because of the way that Kyrou and Sanford were playing with Bozak, and you need those young kids to get that consistency, he left that line alone. He, he, took, he took a guy that he considers to be the engine of this team. He took Oscar Sundquist. He puts him on the second line, and Oscar Sundquist ends up rewarding him with just an amazing performance. I mean, you look at a two goals, two points, he's plus two. He ends up playing only, I mean, and does that in 13 minutes and 34 seconds of, of ice time, right? His his even strength shift time averaged just 35 seconds a shift. He had four shots on goal, three hits. Oh, and he was second on the team. I'm sorry, he was first on the team in block shots with four. What a performance by a guy that you could put anywhere in the lineup and know exactly what you're going to get. And he played the third most minutes of any forward on the PK last night as well. He was all over the place. You know, it, it, was, it was the kind of game where those stats who rattled off led the team in hits, led the team in blocks, behind only O'Reilly and got. You know, that's, that's the kind of monster game. John, how do you – I realize Mike Hoffman's going to play Friday, but if, if there's synergy and there's energy and there's chemistry – with, at, at that level, I don't understand how you break that up right away uh, and just say, go back down and play with Clifford and, uh, and Barbashev. Well, I, I will I will put it to you this, guy, this way, boys. Uh, and I'm not just, you know, I'm just not whistling Dixie here. But when it comes to line alterations, there has been times in key games during the regular season and during the playoff run of 19, Greg Berube made some brilliant moves. You know, and Tim, I'm not trying to get your goat, 
the only time I've ever questioned Berube significantly over certain stretches is his peasant for playing Stanford too much. But I'm, I'm just uh, I'm just telling you that uh, Berube is has he he's he's made some very interesting moves in some key games that have paid off, and I'm not sure curbs whether it's Berube making these moves and assisting a collaborative effort, but Berube pulls a lot of the right strings, man. And that, you know, you've seen coaches do this for a year, but for a good portion, now what would amount to, you know, almost two years of hockey, I've got to be honest with you, I think that's one of Berube's greatest strengths is in addition to obviously his motivational skills, his ability to, Mix and match line, so I, I, I tend to side with Barubi's decision more than most. Well, you know what? That's one of the things, and 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 we'll go back to to what you're referencing. One of the biggest moves he made, the 2019 Stanley Cup playoffs. He didn't like the way things were going. He needed to try and get a line, the the Shen line, uh, away from I think it was the Shifley line as as best he could, and he ends up pulling Sanford from the lineup and moving Oscar Sundquist up to the second line. And that move changed that series. But again, it comes down to Oscar Sundquist being a player that you can do that. Now, in making that decision, he decides, well, we're going to keep Sanford with Bozak and Cairo. And Jordan Cairo had a good camp. Sanford had a good camp. As a matter of fact, Craig Berube told us yesterday that when, when, when we asked him about Jordan Cairo, Craig Berube said, most competitive I've ever, I've ever seen him. And then Jordan Cairo rewards him. Only 12 minutes and 52 seconds of ice time. But he ends up with three shots on goal. He ends up with a goal in the game. He ends up with a hit in the game. Four total shot attempts. Look, they have decided we're going to put trust in this young kid. We're going to give him the room to do it. He's rewarding them with the opportunity. And that line looked really, really solid. So sometimes... It's not just the move you make with Sundquist. It's the move you didn't make because you very easily could have justified moving Sanford up a line. You could have easily justified moving Cairo up a line. He decided not to do that based on what he had seen in camp, and that line came through in flying colors last night. Jordan Cairo and Zach Sanford were very good away from the puck as well as they were on the puck. The play of the game last night was made by a Blues player who didn't even get an assist on the play, and that's the pitch. That the, the, the risky, in my opinion, pinch right at the blue line that Marco Scandella made with Brandon Sod standing right in his face. He, the game's tied at one at the time. He, he pinches and kept the puck in the zone. If Sod gets by him with that puck, it's three on one the other way. And it's a whole different game. He pinches through Sod, Bozak, and Kairou. Uh, Sanford ends up getting the puck and makes a, a terrific spinorama turnaround pass to Kairou. To Bozak and right back to Cairo tic tac toe and it was it was in, but uh, you know, in, in my opinion, that was the play of the game. Marco Scandella I thought looked very good last night and made a risky play that turned out well for the Blues. No, he one hundred percent he did, and that's why he ended up earning the the Joe Vitale work boots on our broadcast after the game. Those those two guys have to be solid. Like like we said at the beginning, if if you're going to be if you're going to be Marco Scandella and Justin Falk, that is the defense pairing that Craig Berube is looking basically to take over the job that for the last year and a half was manned by Colton Pareko and Jay Bolmeister. I mean, there's 
two huge shoes to fill, and we're not even just talking size of the men, but we're just talking about the ability and how they can play. And and they played a solid game. Look, you held the Colorado Avalanche to just five shots on goal in the first period. And yes, they did have a lot more in the second, but you outshot them in the game, and you kept them off the scoreboard at even strength. And we'll, we'll get to Jordan Bennington in a minute, because that, that's a huge story there. But they set the tone as well. Now, Colorado won the faceoff performances in the second and the third period, at least according to official league stats. Now, it's worth noting, for fans out there, coaches keep different face-off stats than the ones you see from the league. But the ones you see from the league do tell a bit of a story. The Blues winning a good chunk of the face-offs, 54% of them in the first period of play, went a long way to helping them set the tempo of that first period and some key moments, especially when you have the penalty kill. Their ability, especially with Ryan O'Reilly, to win a face-off on a penalty kill and shovel that puck 200 feet down the ice is one of the reasons you could end up top half in the league in the penalty killing. If you are always losing the face-off, you're going to give up some goals, especially against teams like Colorado. The Blues didn't do that last night, and that was an important part of special teams. Well, another part of important part of special teams is to play Dustin Falk. You know, we talked a lot about how he wasn't on the power play in training camp. You know, when he became a St. Louis Blue, about 40% of his career points had been scored on the power play. You know, he only had one power play goal in 69 games last year. And so now it's like, okay, with Petrangelo gone, who's going to play on the PK? And Dustin Falk led all Blues defensemen in time on ice last night during the PK by almost a minute. Uh, over any other defense. In fact, five of the six Blues D played on the PK last night. The only one that didn't was Dunn, but Falk had a quiet game uh, on the on the uh, you know goals and assist sheet, but he was plus three uh, and played a ton of time on the PK and uh, I, I thought was uh, maybe not a top three star of the game, but certainly top five. Yeah, I mean it's I mean that's just that's just sort of guys. We could almost just run down the entire roster because that's I mean that's what. That's what. That's how this team has been built. That's what I think some of the national media fail to understand. Is you just rattle off a bunch of names, or you just rattle off a bunch of names. You know? And and while I still have my suspicions about Sanford, let me tell you something. Last night, Sanford had no problem falling down in front of the puck last night, did he, Kerr? Nope. Nope. You know, he did not. I mean, you, you look at a, you, go, you look at a guy like Tory Krug, who I'm trying to figure out. You know what the pluses and minuses are outside of the financial aspect with Krug and and uh, Petrangelo. Krug's effort last night. Krug's, you know, Krug dropping down in front of a few bucks. I mean, that's just that's what's the makeup of this hockey team is that when they're at their best and when they go into a place like Colorado and come out with a three goal win after falling down early. It's because it's 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 a team effort. Guys like O'Reilly and Shin stand out. Tarasenko, when he's on his game, stands out. But it is truly, and it's not you know it's not uh, controversial uh, uh, analysis, but it's just the truth. The team collectively is better than the parts because they're for the most part every player on that roster is willing to do whatever it takes in any aspect of the game. Can notice some key guys on special teams. You know, I'm telling you, you're not going into the game expecting Tory Krug and and uh, and uh, Sanford to stand out by blocking a, a few key uh, key shots, are you? You know what? They so, did. Well, so that's what when we go back to what we were talking about with the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Edmonton Oilers. There's the difference. 
Right. That's the, these teams are better Brick. because they are complete. They're well, but there are some of their parts that makes them better. They just don't have some higher end and then some middle. Like they all seem to complement each other really well. You had 19 block shots in that game. You know, you had Oscar Sundquist with four. Tory Krug had three. Sanford, as you mentioned, had three. And my favorite one of the game, my favorite one of the game, might have been the only one that Jaden Short actually. Jaden Schwartz didn't even get credited for this block shot. But it was uh, it was Burakovsky, I think, coming down the right wing, and Jaden Schwartz did a perfect defensive slide. He slid across and, and at an angle, and he ended up blocking a pass that was intended for a stick going through the middle of the ice that would have created a shot on goal. He blocked it with his elbow. His teammates then come up, and they break the play up. When, when you see Oscar Sundquist go out and block a shot at the point, and then his linemate later in the game, Jaden Schwartz, do that, and Schwartz had a terrific game last night. When those guys are laying it out, if you are somebody else on the team, how do you not do that? And, and again, that's that's the sum of the parts thing that makes the St. Louis Blues so good. Guys, I was I was so happy to see Jaden Schwartz get on the board and, and have a good game and an assist. I like, you know, for him, I know it's been a, a number of weeks since his father passed away, but you gotta figure it's the first time maybe since you know, ever that that after a game, you won't have a chance to call them and things. And these guys are going back to the hotel in Colorado, and you're not really able to do anything. You got to stay in a hotel, so I'm sure it ends up being a bit of a lonely night. But uh, the way we personally got to know Mr. Schwartz from uh, the the dad's trip, and then obviously getting to know the family story through the stories that the team told, and and Jaden Schwartz letting everybody into the story of his sister Mandy. Um, I'm sure that was a heavy game. And I can tell you, having talked to Braden Shen and some other players on this team about it, like the support for Jaden is completely there. But man, I guess, you know, sometimes it's okay for us to take a personal approach to just this game as it is. And I was personally just thrilled for Jaden Schwartz to have that kind of game yesterday. I just, I it felt so good to see him play that way. Well, they rewarded him with a gift assist on the last goal, Chris. So maybe there's uh, there's some good out of all of that. <laughs> on the on the Blues' last goal, he uh, he dumped it in, and Grubauer went behind the net and stopped the dump in and shuffled the puck to the corner clumsily. Thomas goes in and digs it out of the corner, finds Sunfist, he jams in his own rebound, and they gave Schwartz an assist on that. So um, that's a great story, though, that you just told, and and there's a lot of a lot of personal off ice stuff there as well. And uh, you know, he's uh. He's, he's the man right now, as far as I'm concerned, with Tarasenko out of lineup. And I realize O'Reilly's the captain, and O'Reilly is the uh, is the team leader. But, you know, I fully expect him to lead the team in scoring this year. And I don't want to belabor this aspect of the conversation, but it goes back to what we discussed. So we've talked so much. I don't know if it was on the show or personally, but we talked about the Blues' third and fourth lines and, you know, just what might be. I'll tell you what, right right now, boys, I will tell you up front, the Blues' third and fourth lines last night, in my mind, were the key difference between those two teams. 100% right. You are, you are 100% right because the Blues, the Blues have better cohesion, and I think they've got better offensive structure in those lines. Just, I think they just have better players on their third and fourth lines than Colorado does. And and that I think that's going to be a difference. And I think those that scenario too, which ones of those lines perform better is also going to be the difference between St. Louis and Vegas. And I think the gap is much closer with Vegas and St. Louis than it is with Colorado and the Blues. Another intriguing look at last night's game that, you know, John mentioned earlier in the, in the 
broadcast with regard to Baruby shuffling his lines and, and guys being interchangeable. Uh, I don't know how many times this will happen, but all six Blues defensemen got power play time last night, and, and that's not something that you would normally see in a box score. I realize some had more than others, and Scandella and Bortuzzo had uh, less than a minute of power play time, as did Pareko and Falk, but they all they all at least got a shift out there on the power play, and I'm curious to see how that's all going to stack up, because with Krugel left shot now, being a power play guy, you know, Steen and Tarasenko, the Blues usually had four forwards out there as their first power play unit for the last couple of years, and now they've got a right shot and a left shot D out there that that theoretically are going to be your power play captains, or quarterbacks, I should say, and, and uh, you know, Tory Krug wasn't really offensively an integral part of last night's game, but you can still see the speed that the guy has and his ability to play make very similar to Vince Dunn. Guys, there was yeah, a- when I saw when, when I saw Scandella come on for the power play, I'm thinking to myself, Ruby's not paying attention to the clock. There's time left on his power play. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, look, 21 seconds is 21 seconds. And, you know, and if anything, and here's what happens. If anything good happens during that, those players go back to the coach and go, what, you, you didn't see that coming? You should give me more more time on the power play. Yeah, exactly. I, t- t- two more observations, and then, and then, and then I want to get in uh, for a minute on, on the goaltending. There were two, a couple of things that stood out. Krug. All right, so at one point in time, Colton Perico enters the zone. He's got the puck on the right pointer. We have the Blues held the puck in the zone, and he passes it down into the corner. Now, we have to do the games off a monitor, so you see a seven, you figure, okay, that's Schwartz. No, that was Krug. Tori Krug was down in the right corner as an option for Colton Perico. Jaden Schwartz saw this, and Jaden Schwartz wound up taking the point where Tori Krug would be. And then it was, I think this was in the third period, the physical battle by Tori Krug on Rantanen was outstanding. And then Krug and, and O'Reilly dump Ranton and right at the whistle right in front of the uh right in front of Jordan Bennington. It was about a good twenty five second old school battle for position between Krug and Ranton and, and Krug was relentless. So that grit that he brings to the table is a huge part of this. I, I think the Blues are gonna love, absolutely love watching what he ends up bringing to the table. The other thing that jumps off at me is the fact that you only had Robert Thomas and Marco Scandella, the only two players on the team without a shot on goal. And it was only Ryan O'Reilly, Colton Pareko, along with Robert Thomas and Zach Sanford were the only four players that weren't credited with a hit. Right Now, Colton Pareko doesn't go an entire game without bumping into somebody. So I, I always question these hit stats a little bit. But again, when you talk about all-around team play, you had a shot on goal from everybody but two and you had a hit from everybody but four. That tells you something. And speaking of hits, you know, the NHL announced today that there's going to be a, uh, a player safety hearing on the hit that Sammy Blay had on Devon Hayes last night, which he got two minutes for elbowing. I, I watched that play about three times today in slow motion on NHL.com. Uh, both, play, you know, the, the puck was behind the net, a little to the right of, uh, of Grubauer. Both players simultaneously arriving at the puck, they're not going to be looking at each other. They're going to be looking at the puck because they both think they're going to come away with possession of the puck. So both of their heads were down when the hit was made. It just so happens that Hayes' head was was down lower than Blade's head. And as a result, it was a, it was an incidental contact collision, which, which I'm listening to the Colorado broadcasters replay the game, and they're just talking about how brutal and how – damaging of a hit it was and this is what the nhl is trying to crack down on you know if he's looking at him yeah uh if it's incidental with both both guys having their eye on the puck it's just not being 
aware of your surroundings. It's a contact sport. And uh, I'm not saying that it shouldn't have been a penalty, but for him to receive discipline or a possible suspension for that, I think is, is way over the line. My only comment, Curves, regarding your breakdown is I just I sort of I, I just sort of I sort of walked away from that game last night with believing that Tory Krug came out with the intentions of saying, Hello, St. Louis. <laughs> and he did because there's not and he did. There's not one conversation today that I've had about the game from nephews to friends to fellow analysts that have not mentioned the name Tory Krug. He caught everyone's attention with his play last night. And and that is good. Tim, I agree with you on that. I, I do think it was a penalty. The reason it was a penalty, I, even if you didn't mean to have contact that way, that kind of contact is a penalty. So I have zero issue with the two-minute minor that was thrown. Now, the problem was they called it an elbowing penalty, and it wasn't even close. So sometimes I have issues sometimes when penalties are called a certain way and it's the wrong one where – and I totally get it. And I've talked to the officials about this. They, You know it's a penalty, right? But you get it wrong. Well, no, if you know it's a penalty, you still got to get it right. Okay, so shoulder to the head, could have lived with. Roughing, I could have lived with, right? Elbow, that one didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Yeah. So they need, a tar- they need a targeting penalty uh, yeah. because that's what, that's what it would have been in football. Yeah, college and, football. So, and I don't have a problem with the penalty because that's where the contact was. But I do agree with you. I was surprised to see that he'd end up having a hearing on this because if you end up with a hearing on it, that would mean that would mean they're considering a larger suspension. And that, to me, makes absolutely no sense. I, I thought it was more incidental than anything. So unless they saw something we didn't, uh, I don't know. I, I agree with you on that. Now, I'm perfectly fine with the league reviewing any head contact whatsoever. George Peros told us on a, on a conference call that just because it's head contact doesn't mean it's suspendable. So we'll see how this one plays out. But uh, there may be a way to talk themselves out, talk their way out of this one or not. But I, I tend to agree with you. I think I'm perfectly fine. It was a penalty. I don't think it was a suspendable offense you know, along those kind of lines because contact is going to happen. All right, guys, lastly here as we continue with Bourbon Biscuits and Barn Burners, our uh, post-game blues edition, post-game NHL games edition, I guess one way to look at it. And we're going to bring you post-game editions uh, every single day after the St. Louis Blues play as much as we possibly can. Jordan Bennington did it, John. You you talked about it on previous episodes. You don't know why people have angst on this front. He came out there, even when he was asked questions about his play in the bubble, and he goes, look, if you want to look back, you all can look at the bubble. I'll look at an all-star game. I'll look at a Stanley Cup championship. I'll look at a great playoff run. You guys can look at the bubble. And I'm like, that's the Jordan Bennington. I love the attitude. And, man, did he play a terrific game. He helped. He won the game for the St. Louis Blues in that second period. He allowed the Blues and the push from Colorado. He allowed the Blues time to eventually get that third goal from Clifford and, and push the game away. And Jordan Bennington was great. Yeah, in fact, it's ironic that you broached that topic because I was speaking with a guy about that today, and I just said, look, here's what it comes down to. Is Bington the best goalie in hockey? Uh, I don't know, but I know this much. If I have one big game to win, I want Jordan Bennington in the notes, in, in the nets. And, you know, once again, he proved last night, I, the least of my concerns when it comes to the St. Louis Blues is Bennington. I've said that a number of times. I believe in the guy. I wouldn't want another goalie in the NHL on this team other than him. And, you know, I, I, I think that people are going to have less questions about 
his play last year and believe that 19 wasn't an aberration. He's much closer to 19 than he was 20. I do. I, I firmly believe that. Well, the goal that he gave up wasn't exactly the softest goal he's ever given up. It wasn't a great goal to give up. It was a knuckleball that just kind of got under his armpit or just above his shoulder. I forget, but I mean, it was a. It wasn't the hardest shot. In fact, if you even look at the replay of the goal, Comfort Cadre tried to stop the pass with his skate because Comfort was along the wall and trying to slide it across ice and. Kadri tried to stop it so he could take possession of it and missed it. It went right through his legs. How that puck got all the way over to Burakowski, I'll never know because there wasn't exactly a lot of steam on it. But having said that, Bennington made 21 even strength saves last night. The other five were on the power play. Uh, of the even strength play, especially in the second period, I mean, I'd have to say at least at least six above average quality saves just in that period alone. And, and, and that's what turned the game around. You're, you got a 2-1 lead on the road. You, you stave off the, the train that's coming at you. You hold this high-scoring team to single-digit shots in two of the three periods. And the one period you didn't, your goalie won the game for you. That's how it's done a lot. Guys. Well, you know, I, t- I tell you this much when it comes to Kadri. That might have been the only thing he didn't screw up last night. Seriously, that might have been the worst game I've ever seen Kadri play. Sir. He was on the he, ice for all four goals. Yeah. Well, what, I didn't even know that, game. and it doesn't surprise me. He, he he had a bad game. You know, Nazem Kadri is one of those players that can bring so much good to the table. Um, I, I wonder if he's one of those players where um, you've got to find the right responsibility load for him. Look, Craig Berube wanted the matchup of Ryan O'Reilly against Nathan McKinnon, and he was able to get that all night long. I think Jared Bednar was perfectly fine with that matchup. And in the end, obviously, it, it would have been a better if... if, if um, if Jared Bednar was able was able to get somebody else, but um, I think Craig Berube got some of the matchups that he clearly wanted last night. I got to throw this out about Jordan Bennington as we wrap this up today. Just I'm, for, forget all the rest of the analytics. Okay, he played one game for the Blues in the fifteen sixteen season. Didn't play again for the Blues until the eighteen nineteen season. He played thirty two games in eighteen nineteen, the Cup winning year, regular season. Last year, he played 50 games. This year, he's played one. His career record in the NHL is 55, 18, and 8. You can take any analytics you want. I'll take, I mean, he has proven that, I mean, and, and there have been very few, very few games where the team has been blown out or not in it when Jordan Bennington has been in the net. But guys, in his career in 84 NHL games, he is 55, 18, and 8. That's when you just drop the yeah. mic and keep walking. No question. Absolutely um, no question. Well, we've got another no game against Colorado. Hey, real quickly, guys, uh, just and uh, and we'll get back into some of the barn burners and we'll get back into our uh, some bourbon and whiskey and scotch recommendations down uh, in, in another podcast for you as this one just a heavily NHL action breakdown for you. I'm loving the fact. And I don't know how where you guys are. I'm loving these two game series sets, and I'm, I'm I know it's only been after one game. We haven't even seen the second game yet. I'm thinking this is something the NHL can keep. It would help the Western Conference teams with travel without a shred of doubt. It would let, take away some of the wear and tear on the body, but it does feel like you're in a mini playoff series, and it and it is conceivable. It is conceivable, and. We keep using that word, and we do know what it means. It is conceivable that you could see a team 
you can see two of the teams that you're playing against in the regular season a total of 15 times this year. Oh, my goodness, is that going to create some bad blood? It's glorious. I mean, if you recall, that's one of the things that that I, I sort of I'm intrigued by, you know, with this year creating new rivalry. Because I assure you, I don't know if it's going to be Arizona. I don't know if it's going to be Anaheim. I don't know if it's going to be the Kings. Going back to the wild, more so than ever Vegas. The the Blues we're gonna we're gonna come away with more disdain as fans for one particular team that we've never had before that will carry into next year. And if everything reverts back to normal, God willing, we may only see him twice, but we're gonna want a piece of him. Well, it's funny that rivalries exist even when rivalries don't exist. Uh, whenever the Chicago Blackhawks do make their next appearance at Enterprise in front of fans, uh, I guarantee that even though we're not going to play them this year, and even though we haven't been in the Detroit Red Wings conference uh, in quite a few years, uh, to fans, and, and, and maybe I'm showing my age here a little bit, but to, to, to fans in their 40s and over, you know, and, and, and to any age for that matter with regard to the Blackhawks, uh, those teams will still be considered rivals in my mind, regardless of how many times we do or don't play them this year. Well, we can still live vicariously by watching them lose right. on a regular basis, which they will this year. Oh, not, not, let me say something. The, the, the two most positive endorphin-releasing things in my head that happen in the sport of hockey are one, when the Blues win, and one, B, when the Blackhawks lose. I've told you guys, uh, we'll end with this story. This will be our barn burner for, for the week, all right? True story. And, and, and if people are bothered by this, I, I'm okay with the fact that they're bothered by this. Go back of, oh, let's see, uh, Gracie just turned 16. She was nine. So you got to go back five years ago. The Blues lose in the first round of the playoffs to the Chicago Blackhawks. They're up two games to none of the series. They lose in six games. And in that sixth game, it's a tie game in the third period. And Roman Pollock served up a pizza to Jonathan Taves. Taves walks in, scores, and uh, the Blackhawks went on to win the game in the series. So the day afterwards, you know, you know when the season ends, you're always just a little bit grumpy, right? You know, you don't just turn the, turn the page unless you've got no soul like some people have. But you see, you're a little bit grumpy. We're sitting at the sitting at the the, the dinner table, and um, my daughter, my oldest daughter Grace, who's uh, just become a complete hockey nut and a terrific hockey fan at the time, she's really just starting to get into it. And she she was serious. She looked at me and she says, "Dad." I'm going to root for the Blackhawks the rest of the way through. I put my fork down on my plate and I looked at her and I said, go to your room. <laughs> and she, <laughs> she looked, I'm serious. She looked at me and she goes, she looks, <laughs> she looks across at me like, okay, dad's just joking again. And I said, I'm serious. Go to your room. Okay. So she slowly gets down as poor nine-year-old girl gets down off the chairs to kind of mopes back to her room. My wife looks at me with the other two kids at the table and, and Miles WTF. Right, and I just yeah. looked at I looked at Christy and I said, "No kid of mine is rooting for the Blackhawks." At which point, I keep eating. She then says, "About three minutes later, you know, you got to go talk to her." I said, "Yes, I know, I know, I know, I got to go talk." To her. I go, "Oh, fine." So I go back there, and I'm just looking at her, and I I said, "Grace," she said, "Yeah," and I said, "Do you like where you live?" She goes, yeah. <laughs> go, Do you like your American Girl dolls? She went, "Yeah." I said, do you like that every summer we go see your your Papa G in Western Massachusetts and spend some time with him? And she goes, yeah. 
I said, well, that all happens because your dad works for the St. Louis Blues. And when you grow up in St. Louis, a team like Chicago, if they beat us, they prevent that from happening. So in this house, nobody roots for the Blackhawks. Do we got it? And I go, and and, and she goes, she goes, got it, Dad. And I said, while you're at it, no Cubs or Red Wings either. Yeah, exactly. Let's just so oh, so we it all right now. So so then so then you fast forward, and my youngest daughter Ava. All right, now she's a bit of a pistol. She knows she can get under your skin, so she knows the Blackhawks rule of the house. Okay, well actually, I take this back. But even prior to that. About five days later, Gracie gets off the bus, and she's in absolute tears. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what happened? What happened? And uh, she catches her breath, and she says, you know, and kind of in the middle of subs, you know how you said that this girl would be good for me to hang out with? And I said, yes. And she she says, well, I had to tell her today she can't come over because she likes the Blackhawks. <laughs> I, thought, I went, ooh, that went too far. That went too far. I mean, the message got through, but... So, uh, so then my youngest decides she's going to try. Uh, uh, and this this is just about a year or so ago. She was going to try to get under my skin. She looks at me and with this cockiness, she goes, "Hey, Dad, I think I'm going to root for the Blackhawks." And I said, "Grace, you want to handle this?" Grace says, "No problem, Dad. Hey, Ava, you can root for whoever you want, but you don't have to live here." <laughs> Again, so that is that a. is how you bring some. That is how you bring up a fan in a rivalry, right? Exactly. It always exactly. amazing. It always amazes me when the Blues play the Blackhawks and Fox Sports Midwest loves to show cutaway shots of the guy in the Blues jersey sitting next to his Blackhawks-wearing girlfriend in the stands. It, it, it blows me away how that exists uh, in a household. <laughs> and it definitely should. Fellas, great talking with you. Great to have some Blues hockey to talk about. Uh, looking forward to getting into some other great topics on our next edition of uh, Bourbon Biscuits and Barn Burners. Thank you, boys. Take care. Have a good one. Have a great week, everybody, and we'll bring you more after the next uh, St. Louis Blues game. Check it out. Download. You can get the podcast on all the different podcast platforms, and you can subscribe to it. It'll come right to one of your phones, and uh, you won't miss an episode of just some great hockey talk from around the National Hockey League. It's bourbon, biscuits, and barn burners, some NHL-focused, St. Louis Blues-centric. Enjoy, and we'll talk to you next time.